Hi. Hello. Hi, you look so much like Alice. Oh my gosh, it's so awesome. Well, yeah, we are we are a bit of a type, I think. <laughs> or at I least siblings. Mm. I'll just start by saying I love your sister so much. She's like one of the smartest, most interesting people I've come across in a long time. And I'm just, I, you're just so lucky to have her as your sister. She's so yeah. great. Yeah, I like her. <laughs> yeah, she's talked about you on and off for a while. Then she just mentioned you again at Christmas and talking about, because we were talking about, um, you know, how do we, how do we create culture when we have none? That, that was basically the conversation. She said, oh, you must talk to, to Rachel. So that was, that was what led to, uh, to her making contact. And, and it's a funny thing because this time last week, because you were at Kent for a while, weren't you? I went, I got a, I got a um, master's in ethnobotany there. Yeah, strange. Well, exactly. And this time last week, I was talking to somebody else who got a master's from, from Kent in ethnobotany who I never met. So it's just amazing. Like, <laughs> a lot of I never, I only went there once though. I went there for like three days and never went back. Um, right. I did like a master's by research. I didn't, I. Ah, oh, yeah. right, okay. Yeah. So what was what was the what was actually your topic then when you did that? Uh, my topic was what was the exact topic? Um, basically, I was researching how do you revive ceremony and ritual, land honoring ceremony and ritual um, when it's been lost. And yeah. but the topic was more like how do you use ceremony and ritual to strengthen conservation and protection of sacred natural sites. Yeah, but I guess in that sense, um, in that you would probably have been looking at a context where they at least had some, you know, in in the recent past. Yeah. Well, that was what was really interesting is that yes, I found nine case studies where they had lost most of their culture and ritual within the past two to three generations yeah. because of colonization and imperialism and western education and imposition of western religions and um so yeah it was it was in it was right beyond living memory or sometimes in living memory um or 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 in one case in taiwan in um it was it was in the process of being lost at a rapid pace and people were scrambling to try to stop the loss before it had fully happened so it's just really interesting and so i don't did alice send you my recent like blog post I wrote about about all this. You did, which I, I did. Good, good, good. good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I, I'm so pregnant. I can't remember what I've done or not done. You know, I mean, just to give some some background, I guess I've um, I've come into foraging as like a very much an individual, personal um, pursuit. Something that yeah, I was lucky enough to be introduced to a few wild mushroom species by my granddad. But it's always been the thing that you know, I've done on my own and, uh, you know, I might have had girlfriends and now wife and, and, and so on that, that kind of come along, tag along, but it's basically been an individual pursuit that, that I've pursued with fanaticism and enthusiasm and, and whatnot. But like having got all of this wild plant knowledge under my belt now, all of a sudden I'm in this completely different space of thinking, hang on, this stuff is, is, is cultural. And, and would have been and ought to be something that people share time, memories, imagination and, and, and a shared relationship to land. 
would 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 come out of this or be a big big part of you know weaving people back into the fabric of the ecology and and, and so on of the landscape where they are so that's a completely different space and it, and, and it starts begging questions about okay uh, you know what what could we do to celebrate the the passage through the seasons by the way that we're interacting at least in part by the way that we're interacting with these plants at various stages in their growth cycle the particular ways in which we can use them you know what meanings so i mean i'm coming at it from this angle of almost you know in a sense it's closer to like a an art project in a way if you see what i mean because you you use your imagination you use what unfolds in terms of a material what it suggests to you how things become meaningful to you um and so that's the way that um i'm beginning to edge my way towards you know we could do this with the birch sap harvest well we do do that like we do a little thing where we harvest birch sap and then use a ladle ladle to pour it into cupped hands and drink it and talk about the you know the land's waking up the water's rising and the slight hiddenness of that like your baby hidden in you just now although slightly visibly but um <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean there's there's lots of things that you can reflect that are, that are kind of almost obvious metaphors that you can draw from these things Yes. So, but but the, the approach that you're suggesting or or talking about with people who have deep culture and, and knowledge, yeah. So I mean, I I I, I kind of view that it, it is it is like okay, I'm calling it an art, but likening it to an art project because it is that same kind of creative, um, intuitive sense. But but at the same time, I would definitely see that that it isn't just like me and my imagination. Or at least that's not what I would see as the resource that, that is potential to, to open up to. But, but I would see it as kind of probably listening to land or something like that, yes. rather than imagining like I'm actually tuning into a, an, another entity, like to, to call it a spirit or something. That's not quite how it seems to me at the moment. Um, but yeah, obviously within the cultures that you've worked with, but maybe just for the sake of like clearing people in, just... just um, you might want to mention what I'm referring to when I say the cultures that you work with. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a really quick summary of me is that I am a, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. Um, I protect indigenous land rights in various ways. I spent 15 years working in communities, mostly across Africa, but also in Nepal, um, helping, working with amazing, inspiring um, NGOs and amazing national and local lawyers and incredible field staff to support hundreds of communities around the world to document and protect their land rights before they were stolen or grabbed by international investors, national elites, corrupt government officials, um, et cetera. So um, my work has been going into communities and so, well, I can't really go in because it's not really my place as a American lady, but I train amazing field staff to go in and sit down with villages and say, you know, what was it like in the past? Um, how did we used to engage with our natural resources and with the land and with each other? Yeah. What's it like now? What, do, what will it be like in the future if we don't change anything? And actually, what is the future we want? And then from that, making rules and bylaws and um, reviving ancestral practices or making new practices to ensure greater flourishing, like ecological flourishing and biodiversity and 
equity and rights for women and um, more voice for youth and greater accountability for leaders and et cetera. Um, and then also mapping their lands, resolving boundary conflicts with neighbors, um, seeking a title or a deed or other kinds of formal registration so that no one can steal their land. And then finally, learning how to negotiate with potential investors and, and demand free prior informed consent under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples or UNDRIP, um, how to demand to be consulted, how to say yes or no to potential projects, how to advocate for themselves. And then more recently, I've been helping governments write laws that enshrine indigenous and customary land rights into national law. I wrote a book called Statutory Recognition of Customary Land Rights um, a long time ago. And a lot of this work has come out of that. It's how do we um, get governments to recognize indigenous land rights formally so that they can be less easily stolen. But what I realized over time is that um, because of the incredibly seductive forces of capitalism and um, markets and the growing poverty and the just incredible crush of growing population versus the amount of natural resources left in the world. Um, all peoples, like there's, you know, indigenous people and rural villages are still people and money is still money and, um, and Western forces, like I said, like education and free market capitalism and Christianity and all those things have really infiltrated even the deepest, most wildest rural areas. And people are starting to relate to their natural resources like capitalists. Um, and there, you know, as I wrote in that, in that um, blog, it's like, they're looking at a mountain and not saying like, that's the home of our gods. They're like, Hey, there's iron under there. We could get really rich, you know? And like, they're looking at these huge, beautiful trees and saying like, Oh, that's not just like the, one of the foundations of our ecosystem and a, a being in relationship with us. They're saying, Hey, that's really expensive timber. Um, and not all villages, like not all villagers or villages, not all communities, but um, you know, there's always those those people that go in, you know, go into the cities and come back home and have become westernized, or people who, um, you know, like um, alluvial miners and people who have really tapped into the the free market economy and start looking around and saying, you know, what can we sell to get to get money? And so I realized that over the past couple hundred years, the undoing of these indigenous and ancestral and um, nature-based conceptual and spiritual frameworks has really led to a, a change in all of our relationships with the natural world. Um, so that's why I left my job and I went back to school. I did this degree in ethnobotany um, to figure out like, how do we revive these ideas of the natural world as sacred, as sacrosanct, um, as, as for me, you know, over the years, I've become an animist. And so when I go out into the forest, I'm, I'm very much surrounded by like thousands of beings who are watching me as much as I'm watching them. And so, and this is a very just normative sort of, I don't know, nature-based spirituality kind of way of thinking. That's, that's not the too weird anymore. Um, and which actually is the way that most indigenous peoples relate to the yeah. world around them. I mean, speaking very, 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 overarchingly and vaguely. Um, and, and so my question is, how do we, how do we, how can I, or how can we support ourselves um, to, to stop looking around at the natural world as 
natural resources because resources is like something we're going to extract from right versus just like a a, a host of sentient beings that we're interrelating with Um, and this is why I was sort of when Alice was like many a couple two three years ago I was telling Alice how you know we were gathered she was showing me how to forage stuff that she learned from you and I was like well have you asked the plants permission yet and she was like what and I was like yeah you got to ask the species like can I gather a bunch of you she was like, you should tell my brother that, <laughs> you know? And so, and so, you know, one of the things is like, okay, when I going into the forest to gather, like, you know, in England, wild garlic, which is so amazing. It's like, okay, I'm going to make sure that I ask permission. I explain myself. I introduce myself. I explain that I'm going to take like one bit of garlic from here and one bit of garlic from there. I'm going to disperse it through the, through the, like through the area where the wild garlic is. And I'm, um, and I wait for permission and I don't take more than I need. And, and, um, and these are just like very, very basic, like sort of pan indigenous pan, like, you know, pan cultural practices of asking permission, introducing yourself, waiting to hear a yes or a no, waiting to hear instructions like, okay, you can gather me, but only over here, or don't take this, don't take the new ones, leave the babies, take the older one, you know, like, usually plants have some strong opinion about if you're going to gather them, like how to gather them. And so as part of my practice, it's like, okay, if I'm going to relate to all these plants in the forest, like I would to, you know, someone, someone I've bumped into at the supermarket, it's like, what, what's the, what's the correct way to, to go about doing it? So, so I wanted to bring that up because I, I think, from what I understand, you have a really wonderful work teaching people how to forage. And, um, and part of what you're talking about is like, how do you make deeper relations with the land? And so that means making relationships with all the, all the, all the beings on the land. Right. So that's a very long, long explanation to the quick summary of who I am. (laughs) Um, So obviously you mentioned that in your email um, and I have, you know, I have, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that as a, as a fundamental approach. And I'm, I'm not going to say I disagree with it as a fundamental approach, but it isn't where I've started from. And I think there's a good reason for that. And um, so I guess what I'm saying is I slightly disagree with you. Oh, tell me why. <laughs> this is great. Let's talk about it. Because um, I think probably we could have a better discussion than uh, than if I said, that's amazing that you think that and move swiftly along. <laughs> um, so essentially, uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a few things around this and, and I've thought more about it since getting your email earlier this week. Um, but somebody, somebody raised it the other week, um, and talked about it. And, and, and the first thing I said in that conversation was, you know, the forage stuff that we consume, most people don't eat 10%. So the point is, where's the rest of that stuff coming from? And, you know, we're not applying the same logic to the stuff we're buying in a supermarket. We're not applying the same logic to the clothes we're wearing. We're not applying the same. So I'm, it's almost, it almost seems disingenuous for me to have this little corner of my life where I'm being ever so reverent to living beings when everything else I'm doing is smashing through living beings because I'm part of this global consumer culture. So that's, that's one kind of thing that... I think well, if I can't if I can't take that everywhere, then it seems a bit tokenistic to just do it when I'm foraging. But you know, that's not to say that 
I'm not, especially the number of people keep raising this at the moment, that, that I'm not open to edging my way in that direction. <laughs> right. But um, so that's one thing. Um, but the other thing is, you know, for years, people are saying to me, especially because like I've, I've been a bit of a, a, an initiator in this, like a catalyst that's kind of not just me, but like me amongst others, you know, have, have meant that now more people are foraging than were. Like there's a lot of restaurants using stuff and that's what I've done, like harvested on quite a big scale. Um, and yeah, that's another thing, which which if, if I've got 50 kilos of seabed together, I'm a little disinclined to go down and say, hey, is it all right if I cut a 50 kilos of seabed? Because I've got restaurants to supply and, you know, it, it just doesn't, you know, so you, you might say, oh, well, that's, that's the trouble when you get the capitalist thing involved. But actually, the other side to it, so maybe eventually put all of these bits together to, 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 to have a sort of coherent view. Um, when people say, so some people say, you know, okay, you're, you're encouraging foraging, you're, you're, you're making these products popular with restaurants, and now there's a lot more demand for it, whereas 15, 20 years ago, people didn't even know these things were there, and so they could have been just left alone and, and wasn't that a good thing. And, and it comes down to this, aren't you worried about over-harvesting? That's what people will say. To which my response is, no, I'm worried about under-harvesting because you have this whole thing that, that humans are actually a species in an ecosystem which is co-evolved. And, and as with every other situation where living things eat other living things, there's a two-way thing there that that our consumption of resources is causing disturbance and disturbance is actually what life is. It's not things being left alone and untouched. So, um, and, and funnily enough, um, I, I mentioned, I mentioned this to, um, to the, the guy that edits the podcast and, and he's just been digging into, um, I don't know if you've read um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's. I was just literally sitting here saying, like this, that's that's what yeah, yeah. the whole premise of sweetgrass is, right? Like you, the well, yeah. more you disturb sweetgrass, the more it grows. You know exactly. So, so they they did. But for those who haven't read the book, like they they did research that looked at why is sweetgrass disappearing, and there was a very sweet lady who said, you know, showed Robin how she harvests the grass and just took one piece at a time, and and was saying, yeah, there's other people that kind of pull it up by the roots. But then Robin went and talked to the people that pulled out by the roots. They said, yeah, but, you know, we, we, we ask permission. We, we only take a certain amount. We leave an offering of tobacco. We do all this reverent stuff. And we don't think it's doing any harm. And then the research they did showed that the reason the sweet grass is disappearing is because no one's harvesting it. So exactly. there's, there's the respect that you show by the approach you take. And then there's the respect you show by, well, they said, she said, you know, we could either do this or we could ignore the plants. And that's, that's worse. That's the worst scenario. So, okay. So wait, so I want to respond to your points because I yeah. feel like in your second point, you just made my point for me even more. Like in, in, in the guise of dis disagreeing with me, I think you made the point even better. But in your first point of like, it's, it's uh, you know, hypocritical of me to treat that so reverently when I go to the grocery store and get a bag of oranges or whatever. But I feel like that's poor logic. Like just because you have no control over 90% of where the food that you consume comes from doesn't mean that you shouldn't be respectful and honoring in the 10% of the food that you do have 
relationships with. Like, for example, if you had chickens in your backyard and you were getting your eggs from your chickens, you wouldn't just like, just like treat your chickens like crap, just, you know, because they're chickens and you, like you would be kind to your chickens. You would make sure they were free from diseases. You would say hello to them when you gathered their eggs. Like ideally you would like make it, you'd talk to them when you bought them and say, or inherited them and say, you know, I'm going to take really good care of you. I'm going to feed you every day. I'm going to make sure you have enough room to run around. And, and in exchange, I'm going to take some of your eggs or all of your eggs. Um, and, you know, so the idea that like you, you have to abdicate reverence and respect for the bit that you do have control over because you don't have control over for the other bit just doesn't make any logical sense. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, um, like getting like taking yourself off the hook on like, you know, it's like, oh, I don't know, you know, 90% of starving people. So the 10% of starving people I do know, I owe them nothing. It doesn't make any sense, you know? I don't, like, think, I don't think that's what I'm saying, but that's that's good good feedback so I can clarify what it is I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not arguing for no reverence. Yeah. So, you know, if I say a bit more about the... the the commercial harvesting thing and the, and the overall picture, as I see it, you, you'll perhaps get a sense of, uh, of, of where reverence comes into this. I wouldn't be going at it from that angle to say, well, I, I advocate reverence in this case because I show no reverence in that case. The direction I'd be going in is saying, how can I show more reverence in that case? Yes, yeah. of course. So, yeah. So that's that's what I'm trying to work on is to say, number one, we're more, more careful about what we what we eat. Um, but, but I mean, the, a funny thing there is like that we get, we get a veg box from a local organic farm. And because I can't find ways at the moment for, for the whole family to like certain vegetables, it gets thrown <laughs> away. It gets thrown away. So that's that's the, the that's the, the reverence I'm trying to show to that stuff is to not get it thrown away. Like right. let's find a new squash recipe that everybody actually likes. Right. Let's find a new, you know, so uh, uh, and and um with regard to stuff from elsewhere, it, it it is making me think, well, you know, how could how could I eat an orange and and try and just connect with that like it it's come from somewhere right can i just have some concern this did actually come from a piece of soil some people handled it you know there's there's something that i could be thinking because the fact is that you know eating you know i'm more and more thinking that eating is 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 an act of communion yes. in a sense if not if not sacramental you know because because each each living thing has all kinds of metaphors and relations attached to it that means you're connecting with something wonderful so it, it's it's more that it's just like the, I'm, I'm thinking that people will do it in this tokenistic way of, of now i'm a hippie because i'm out foraging but the rest <laughs> of the time i don't give a shit because you know i'm off hippie duty you know and and that that's the thing i'm thinking is no i i want to be fully on you know hippie duty to say to, to, to call it that you know all the time Right. But I, but I'm not going to sort of just do it in a big way here and not here. So so right. let, let me let me just say that the, the, the whole thing with the commercial foraging is that you, you, you perhaps I don't know, like thinking 50 kilos of sea beet for a restaurant. This is terrible, you know, because that's what most people do think until I don't think that I don't think that. OK, but <laughs> but but the thing is, like when you're trying to do something as a business, you're working within this context and there are downsides to it. There definitely are. E.g., we found out that a lot of the restaurants we're selling to 
have no reverence for it. And we always assumed that they all did, you know, we always assumed they're coming from the same space as us to think this is amazing. We're connecting with land. This is ancestral knowledge. This is etc. And we realized, no, it looks trendy to have wild food on the menu and we'll get more people in and we'll, people will think that we're amazing and we'll become rich and famous, you know, we go, oh dear, is that what we're, so there, you know, there's all kinds of caveats like that. But the main thing is that by bringing these plants into high-end restaurants, we have been a part, played a part yes. in, in putting cultural value on things which have been despised and ignored. And therefore this is the beginnings of a weaving of a fabric of culture, yes. you know, that joins people and, and landscapes. And that is reverence. So, yes. you know, the, the overall accomplishment there is that the, this thing, and, and, and just to kind of put it in a more um, kind of, I don't know, romantically metaphorical sense, yeah? If, if you'll just excuse me, I happen to think that, that wild plants that you can eat and that are medicines are like a kind of breast milk exudation of, of, of land, yeah? That, that this is this is a, a a benevolent nurturing that's how i feel it yeah it's yeah. not that and 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 i just think that when when your baby's born and it finds your breast and starts eating yeah it's not going to be asking permission <laughs> and it's not going to be saying i'll only take 50% right tuck in you know and and i just think that we as people in the west who have no indigenous roots and background yeah the first thing that Mother Earth wants us to do is just fucking go connect to the breast and start drinking. You know, that's 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 that is point number one, because that's you know the whole thing around that, the oxytocin, the bonding, and all of that. This is what we're lacking. You know, so later on we can catch up and be well-behaved children that say thanks, mum, for lunch. You know, but 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 for now, let's just let's just get back on the breast and start. You know, doing this thing which as a living being, this is our inheritance and the land's thinking, where, where are you? You keep walking past, excuse me, hello, hello. And, and the irreverence to me is the fact that we walk past these dandelions, these nettles, this, this ground elder, every day we walk past, you know, there's this table that's been spread out before us and we're just off to McDonald's or, 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 or the organic whole food shop even. But all of that is 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 disregarding the 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 the, the feast that's been laid out before us. And I think you know a gift not received, a gift not partaken of, is 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 very rude. So you know this is this is where I'm trying to work with the reverence is to say I'm actually I mean, paying attention. That's yeah. beautiful. I, I completely agree with you. I completely. And you know, there's all kinds of like I, I can't remember where I've read it, but the like all kinds of stories about someone who's sick. And the right herbal plant just shows up growing outside their door. You know, I'm sure you've heard these stories. Like, I mean, even in my own house in Somerset, like my friend Tasha Stevens, who's a, a professional forager also, she came over. She's like, oh, my God, you have this. Um, what was it? It was uh, one of those. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It was one of those um, herbs that really helps your, you breathe easily when you have lung problems. She's like, look at this growing right outside your front door. Like, and, and you're having some, like, you know, some lung problems right now. Like, especially right now with COVID, look at this, the, the, the actual herb that's needed to heal is literally growing in the cracks of between the cement, literally in front of your door. And so I, I agree with you. I think that there's a way in which the plant world as a, as a, it's very hard to talk about these kinds of things because it gets really, um, 
sort of far out, but like I I do I've experienced and I do believe that there's an exchange of like love force coming from the earth itself. And that love force animates the plant world and the, the animal world eats the plant world. And we're all sort of in this bigger chain of um, the life force and the love force, which is about, um, is about, you know, just um, nourishing and providing for one another in, in, in yeah. a very, 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 very generous way that goes beyond human capacity to understand. And, you know, I wanted to say before about, my teacher, Martin Prechtel, he talks about how agriculture is the enslavement of plants. And I think that's true. It's like we've taken these wild beings and we've planted them in rows and we've genetically modified them or not even genetically, just like, you know, through breeding modified them to be very unlike the wild things they were into what we need now to feed giant civilizations. And, and then there's Michael Pollan's work that says actually they've enslaved us to to, to make them, you know, prop like, like the thousands of potatoes and apples and corn around the world. Like that's actually them getting us to be their workers. So it, it's a, it's a, there's fascinating different takes on the whole thing, but you like, it would be amazing if we all went out and gathered the gazillion dandelions that are in all of our yards and made feasts of them because they're all right there. But again, that's where it comes down to your work, right? Of teaching people, like, this is what you can do with this. This is delicious, you know? Like, don't go buy pesto in the store. Go out and get wild garlic. Make wild garlic pesto, you know? Um, and, and basil itself used to be one of the holiest plants, actually, um, which is why, like, basilicas were called basilicas. There was, like, a relationship to basil. Okay. But um, so that's that's one thing. I also wanted to talk about um, I wanted to go back and talk about um, one of my favorite books is by Elliot Cohen. It's called Plant Spirit Medicine. I'm not sure you've ever heard of it. But at the beginning of the book, he talks about going into a forest of, I think they were Douglas firs or some kind of pine and needing to chop down a bunch to get a bunch of firewood. And he just sits there and he's like, all right, how do you want, I'm going to take, I'm going to kill a bunch of you. How do you want me to do it? And he waited and they were like, we've got these like, um, like groups of, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit like um, inarticulate because I'm pregnant, all my blood's going to my uterus, but they were like, okay, we've got these groups of, of trees where like six of them are growing in a bunch. And, be, and actually it's too, it's too dense for us to grow healthily. So go in and cut out the middle one yeah. of all the bunches because that'll actually help us flourish more as a forest. Yeah. And he went and did that. And, and they were actually gr quite grateful to be um, thinned in that way. And he went home with a buck with like, you know, a, a, whatever, a, a bushel full of, full of, 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 uh, of, for, of firewood. And so it's not that I'm not saying, and, and just as you said, with sweetgrass, like the more you pull it out, the more it grows back. And there's like thousands of plants like that, that grew up in relationship with the human world. There's another amazing book called Tending the Wild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a huge one. It's by Cat. Cat. What's what's Cat's last name? I forget. But it's like this. It's Cat's thick. Yeah. Yes. And um, you know, and she basically goes very deeply into how so much of the California um, like ecology grew up in tandem with with humans tending the wild. Like she tells stories about people who would um, like they would gather berries here and eat them, and then make sure to poop them out over there. Absolutely. To make sure that they like so that when the like, you know, the, the Spanish conquistadors showed up, they were like, 
it's an absolute garden of Eden. Oh my God, the natural world is so flourishing and abundant. But that was because there'd been thousands of years of humans literally tending the wild. And so I completely agree with you. It's not about like um, not taking it. It's not about not harvesting 50 kilos. It's about the reverential way in which you do it. And, And to me, you know, it's, it's real. It, what's important, as you said, is it's not whether or not the restaurants are being reverent enough when you bring them the, the foraged food. It's like, are those diners suddenly like, huh, this is forage. That's interesting. I'm eating dandelion and I like it. Maybe I'll go out and make a dandelion salad next spring at my house, you know? So it's like, like I think the deeper question, which is really exciting to me is like, how do we actually help people understand that when you're eating food you're like engaging in something that's way more profound than just the like you know get a burger at a restaurant eat it go home you know one of the things and going back to the oranges in the supermarket idea you know one of my I'm not always so awake or so intentional but one of the things I love to do is like, I'll look and see where the, where the package came from. Like, especially if you go to Sainsbury's or, or Waitrose, it says like, this is from Egypt, this is from Spain, whatever. And I'll, I'll, I'll eat it. And I'll think about like, I am putting the soil of Spain or Egypt into my body at this moment. Like I'm literally eating the, the rain of Egypt and the soils of Egypt and it's going into my body and it's becoming my muscles and tissue and yeah. blood. And like, that's actually fascinating. That's like so exciting, right? Like, yeah. oh my God, my, my, because of our global agricultural like commodity exchange world, I have literal atoms from the entire planet that make up my body. Whereas in the olden days, it would be like, you're just eating from your local ecosystem and you're just, you're, you're so much more um, made up of the, like the nutrients and atoms and energy of the land that's local. But these days we're made up, we're all global. We're literally global at a cellular level, which you could say is a sad thing because it would be much more beautiful to be completely and fully of our local area. Or you could say it's a, it's a phenomenal thing that like my body is made of atoms from the entire planet. Like it's, it's just a different way of thinking about things. I must say this is the first time I've ever had that kind of laid out in a, in a way that makes it look positive. I could, it, I can see it's a beautiful idea that, 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 yeah, this is something about us being made of earth from lots of places. And therefore we're in some sense in communion and, part of those far off places yeah that's it's it's great to have that flipped on its head (laughs) (laughs) um sorry i just threw a lot of different things at you but elliot cohen plant spirit medicine another thing i wanted to say this book is amazing i've never even it's a very like random book it's called um environmental arts therapy and the tree of life by ian siddons yeah so this is the one that's got it's got all the different trees for the months of the year yeah yeah it's not just got trees it's got rituals for the months of the year and all the different like plants for the months of the year ian siddons hegenworth an environmental arts therapy in the tree of life and what i wanted to say is you were saying that um taking your groups out and like, and, and having them do these beautiful little rituals, like pouring the birch sap into their hands and drinking it, you were saying it's a cultural project, but I would also say it's a, 
where are the lines between cultural and spiritual? Yeah, no, I fully, yeah. fully agree. It's yeah, I think cultural is spiritual. You know, anything and, with, and psychological yeah. too, because what Ian is talking about is the psychological yeah. connection to, to the land and um and to and to and also the thing that we're not talking about here is like our own animality. You know, we're we're not just humans, we're animals. Yeah. And I think what some of what you're doing is bringing that in too. It's like animals actually they live foraging off the land and, and the fact that we don't is weird. It, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very weird indeed. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the thing is just like, it's, it's, it's the remedial steps, you know, to, to at least reestablish contact of some sort. That's, um, that's what um, I think the task in hand is. Um, but like the, the end, the end result, well, no, the end results far off you can't see it but like in the meantime intermediate result is is that you know we don't keep missing these harvests that's the that's the thing that presses on me is like here are all these harvests and 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 the years pass and, and they pass us by and so what's supposed to happen you know there's supposed to be a kind of meeting at each of these points these these where we intersect the berry harvest the flower harvest, the root harvest or whatever at any given time. Uh, we're supposed to meet with that and there's something that's supposed to come of it, you know, how we affect those plants by partaking, how they affect us by partaking. Our relationship with the landscape as a whole and other species, you know, and that's all passing us by. So that's the, the objective that, that I have is, is to try and move in that direction so that people in particular places re-establish these solid relationships, not, not tokenistic ones, you know, not right. the odd, odd person like me that gets to be in their bonnet about foraging when everyone else is, you know, but this just becomes, this just becomes uh, what everybody does again, which, which, which for me is, is like such an obvious place to end up, although there are forces at play in the world that would perhaps make sure we definitely don't end up there. But like, if we, if we proceed from the what you're mentioning, but with this thing about us being animals, if we're to follow that path, there's nowhere else to go. You know, we 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 have to start just being in the place that we are, and there's no other way of doing that than to respond to what what and who is there. Um. Yeah, but it's you know it is it is. I guess the emphasis I'm, I'm wanting to make is like this: we're, we're, this is a remedial kind of activity. You know, we're 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 in a completely lost, broken, crippled, handicapped, mad. You know, every way you want to say it. You know, this is not how it's meant to be. And, no. and so, you know, we've got to take some steps that lead us from here to, you know, maybe that intermediate stage I mentioned, and then some other kind of future that we perhaps can't imagine where we've righted the wrongs and suddenly, you know, we're part of everything again, instead of being apart from and against everything as we are now. So, you know, um, but I guess this is the thing, but, 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 but your kind of thing to me is, is like the other side of the, the coin, you know, because there's, there's us who have no ground to stand on in terms of ancestors and culture. And then there's people who's, They've got the ground, but it's been so severely undermined, but they're just hanging on. They're just hanging on. And it's like how these two things interrelate, I think. I mean, it is fascinating from an intellectual point of view, but it's also deeply compelling that, that like, this is necessary. You know, there's got to be the ones yes. the ones doing it from here with nothing. And the ones, and there's, there's a meeting point, I think, 
that is really necessary, you know. I mean, I have so much to say about this. It's like, it's hard to even to know how to start. You know, one thing I will say as an American who had spent, you know, 15 years living in and working and living in Africa, I thought that I hated the British. Like, oh, the colonizers, arrogant people went around the world telling everyone how to do things. And, and then I got to England to live and I was just gobsmacked as as British people would say, or maybe from a different time, I was just astonished at the degree of cultural trauma in the UK. And and your sister, actually, Alice, turned me on to this book called Boudicca, where I don't know if you've read it, but the author has done an extraordinary amount of research into pre-Roman um, like English culture, like an enormous amount of research. And then she put it into, into fiction, which is, or fictionalized history, which is pretty interesting. But it became clear to me just from being on the land in England, because I was on the land for like two years before I, I read Boudicca, that the degree of trauma that the British people suffered under the hands of the Romans, and then this all the subsequent invasions that that cut off your own indigeneity and your own spirituality, it like calcified in this unbelievably heartbreaking way. And, 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 and you can see it in the love that British have for their, for their nature. Like you, all the children's books that come out of England where there's just such love for the like paltry amount of few wild animals you have, like the badger and the whatever, like there's no wild animals anymore in the UK because they've all been exterminated. But, but the love that the people in the UK have for the natural world, is is actually quite extraordinary. And you can feel the grief of the loss of your own indigenous connections in everyone. That's why everyone's drinking. That's why everyone's smoking. That's why there's this cutting humor. Like it's, there's such a grief of those original, like the British were the original colonized indigenous people. And then what I understood from living among the British was that that when you went and you colonized, say, you know, South Africa or wherever, um, you know, Belize or any country, it was like somewhere in the deep psyche of those colonizers was the grief of what they'd lost. And the, un, the, like the, that grief was like, if I can't have this, no one can have it. If I can't be connected to the earth in this profound way, I'm going to crush it in you too. Um, and and I, I really like it changed my view of the entire British Empire of of one of like, oh, my God, there's so much pain and trauma here. of What was crushed out of us by the Romans and the Normans and all the different subsequent invaders. And and we're going to crush it everywhere we see it because because it's too painful. Our loss is too painful. And even if that wasn't I'm, I'm sure that wasn't in anyone's psyche at the time, but it was in their ancestral psyche. Because now, because it's much more recent than that. Like the, 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 a lot of the people coming from Scotland, for example, were, yes. were from the Highland clearances. They'd exactly. Uprooted from their own land, and and in and in England, it's the Enclosures Acts. Right. Just, just the utter. That's right. You know, it didn't happen everywhere, but in a lot of places, the things that have been like for generations and generations going back, you've got this common land that you have access to. All of a sudden, that is totally taken away and that's people, right people are starving and yes. they have to move into cities and yes. they have to work in factories now because because they've been so in in, in so far as 
you know, you're looking at anything that's post the clearances, it's quite likely that the colonizers have had a very immediate recent experience. Yes. And the Irish too, because they were our first colony. They were the that's first it. people that's we right. colonized. So, you know, it's it's there in the ancestral sense, as you say, uh, but it's also more recent. That's exactly right. I was actually just interviewing the the community land movement in Scotland, some folks from there. It's just incredible. I had no idea the degree to which the British treated the Scottish like they treated every other colony. They literally made it into a feudal, a feudal situation where people are, yeah. are like they, they stole all yeah. the land and they but, gave it to rich people and then everyone else became tenants on the land. It's like, that's right. Wow. The, difference, the difference between Scotland and England, right, is, is if you talk to the average person in England and, and ask them how they feel about the, the, uh, the enclosures, Unless you're on this kind of topic that we're talking about and you've, you've, you've kind of got into it from that angle, no one is angry. No. And my great-grandfather, do you know, no one. But if you go to Scotland, people are still really fucking angry about yeah, the clearances. As they should be. As they should that's, be. That's why we've got this, this community land movement in Scotland and we don't have it here to anywhere near the same degree. That's right. That's right. But but what I wanted to say, and I think this is so important, and what I say in my in my blog is that just because you're not on your own indigenous land doesn't mean you can't create a spiritual relationship with it, and 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 just because you're a colonizer or a settler or descended from imperialists or or if you were enslaved and brought to land that was not you know your indigenous land. Um, or if you're a refugee or an asylee, land everywhere. And this goes back to our topic about the like sentience of plants, right? I believe that the land itself is, is completely sentient. And, um, and, and, this, and this even applies to like, you know, people in England where you have, I mean, what's amazing about England is you still have these parks everywhere that technically are public lands. I mean, every little corner of London has its own little park. Um, which is technically still like the commons, literally. But, you know, if even if you live in an apartment building with a scrap of, you know, six foot by 30 foot grass in front of it, that's still a piece of land that you could be in relationship with. And just like the dandelions we were talking about, or I don't know, the beech trees you were discussing, like if you are on a piece of land and you're living there, it's, it doesn't matter if you're descended from colonists or settlers or refugees, you can still make relations with the land that you're living on. Like for me, when I moved to Somerset, clearly I have no business with England whatsoever. I've, I have no British descendancy, nothing, but I was still, you know, making ceremony on the land, greeting it every day, making offerings to the spirits of the land after every meal. And and learning about, you know, how to gather, you know, elderberry and make elderberry syrup, how to get and how to gather wild garlic, as I've said, how to get like I learned the plants and I learned the ecosystem in the ways that I could and um, just made relations with Hawthorne, which we don't have here in California. And, you know, found the like there. What amazing to me is that I moved into a part of Somerset that has got tons of redwood trees in it. And I was like, oh, look at redwood trees. Like you and me, we're both, we're both in transplants from California. You know, I made relations with those, with those, 
with those redwoods and was like, I remember where you're from. Like, and you, you know, I, I, I feel your connection to my homeland, you know? So there's a way that you could, that we as disrupted, uprooted, cut off people can still remake those relationships. Like whether the Romans did it, whether it was the enclosures, the point is, is that there's a rupture in ourselves that we can heal on a day-to-day basis by purely making relations. You know, my teacher, Martin Prechtel, he says like inside of each of us is a whisper of our indigenous soul. That's like just there whispering, waiting for an opportunity so, to come out. Is this, is, this, is this the talking Jaguar guy? That you're- the talking Jaguar guy, yeah. <laughs> he wrote a whole book about seeds and plants, actually, called The Unlikely Peak at Kuchimaquit. I'm my way through that, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty profound book, and he's very generous in, in all the things he talks about there. But he says that, you know, we each have this whisper of an indigenous soul within us that that is just waiting for an opportunity to come out. And when you go into the forest or into the ocean, you gather things. That's that's your indigeneity, you know? And and when when I go out and I learn how to gather hawthorn berries and you know make hawthorn ketchup or whatever that's that's like it's you know it's it's that part of me that gathers when we go out into nature and we are foraging or when we make an offering to the land like you know what I'll usually do is take a little piece of my food like and and give it and give it to the spirits of the land which usually means the birds or the mice or the insects um we're we're relating in a in a in a different way than we normally would. And it wakes up that traumatized, hurt part of us that used to be connected to the land and got severed from it and is grieving in some deep, you know, as Martine said, that whisper, that whisper level deep in our DNA. It's like, there's part of us that are grieving to be so disconnected from it. And so when we make these little rituals or we go to that little strip of land in front of our apartment block and just lay down a, t- a tiny morsel of our dinner and say, thank you, spirits of the land, or just thank you, land. Um, there's something that we're healing inside ourselves. And more than that, we're letting the earth know, like, I relate to you as sentience. Like, you're not just something I tromp across at the end of my work day. Like, I see you. I see you and I honor you and I'm grateful for the way that you're allowing me to suck at your breast. Essentially, you know, you're right. Like we just, we just, as humans, we just suck at the breasts of the earth, but it is, we're not infants. We do have the capacity to say, Hey, thanks. That's, that's wonderful. You know, that orange from Morocco was delicious. <laughs> I'm really glad I have those, those atoms inside my body. Now, let me figure out a way to just say, thank you. So what I'm talking about here is, is two things. I know I'm, I'm being a little, I'm talking a little too much, but in the re-relating with the land, we're both healing our own ancestral trauma and we're relating to the earth in a more reverent, loving, respectful, gracious way. And I think those two things done slowly and methodically over time can make a very profound change on someone in some way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can't disagree with anything you're saying. <laughs> you don't need to. <laughs> yeah. It's just that, like, the, I guess it's just a question of what ends up being um, one person's focus and, and, and priority, you know, like, because I guess the, the thing of there being a breach and there being, um, 
yeah, that, you know, a, a complete absence of any relation. And um, the thing that, that I'm most conscious of is that until it's not just me doing this um, and that there's actually people in a particular place that get together, not just because they're the local hippies, but because they're the people that live there who get drawn into these cycles and every year. So, you know, we've, we've just done a very small thing, but just like some, some friends of ours um, who kind of are hippies actually, but, but, but like get their kids out here, do some work processing some acorns, make some fruit letters. And then I, I just kind of feel like that's the, that's the, um, that's the sort of, I mean, it's kind of holy, you know, like that all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we're coming back. You know? Yeah, we're repopulating this place. It's just like you know, I've had, I've had this idea about you know there being the, the the people aren't here anymore, and yet it's densely populated. The village I'm in is densely populated, but it's like in terms of the land and and how things were, there were people that were here and and they were they belonged and were part of, and this was this was wonderful. And and now all the people they they're here, but they're not here. You know. And, and, and this is like for people to just, just start doing these very basic things again is like, it, it's, it's like a place that has been totally depopulated and just one or two people come back and then three or four people. And then, you know, so this is, this is just, I guess it's just, like I said, it's a question of emphasis for me that the, the deep um, reverence and acknowledgement and response really the, the point is it's a response yeah so that the, there's there's all this stuff that is that is kind of breathing you know and we're we're supposed to breathe it in and breathe it out and be part of that and the fact that we don't you know like it's it's um the real act of um reconciliation really because this is this is what it yes, is you know? that's right is to, is to actually participate again when we have not been participating and 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 like I've realized, you know, I kind of feel funny now, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm in a space when I, when I collect these plants and it, and it is, see, part of me, I almost feel like I shouldn't say anything like, cause I'm, you know, I fully get everything you're saying and it's, it's, you know, it's lovely and it's, it's, it's right, you know, and, 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 and obviously everything you're saying has a tremendously strong basis in terms of what so many people have always done, you know, but I just feel like me from where I'm coming from, it's, it's like, I'm okay. This is what it seems like to me. If I turn up in Chile next week and I'm in some village in the middle of nowhere and I can't speak a word of the language, there's something about that that is very different from walking into a pub in England where I do speak the language. And that's how I feel with plants. You know, I don't, I don't speak the language and, and, and I almost don't want to kind of blunder in there and just say, oh, you know, like the indigenous people do, thanks for being here to feed me. And, and I, I almost feel like that's inappropriate for me, just like how my journey is with these things. It's like, I don't speak the language. I, I understand I'm feeling a presence here. I'm feeling a something that is, you know, I'm a human and you're a plant and, and all of that, but um, yeah, 
I don't, I don't know if that's making any sense. I mean, it does, and I'm actually quite touched by your by your vulnerability in, in talking about this. But I would also, I would, I would disagree. You know, I've spent a lot of time just walking into other cultures that are not mine, and um, and even walking into lands I've never been to before, right? And I, my teacher Anne Rosencrantz, she 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 taught me. She said, you know, or she teaches many people like when you go onto the land, sit down, have a prayer smoke, introduce yourself. And I do I do this all the time? No, because I I try not to have prayer smokes all the time. All the, but like if you're going into a new country or a new piece of land you've never been to, it's good to just walk on and take 30 seconds and say, my name's Rachel Knight. I'm the daughter of Rona and Michael Knight, granddaughter of uh, Dorothy Brown and Sidney Schwab and, um, and Hannah Leopold and Ferdinand de Freyemnecht. And, and I come here with love and respect and I, I'm a stranger from a foreign land, but I see you and I, I relate to you and, and I honor you and, and thank you for welcoming me. You know, like takes two seconds, just a little prayer. No one can even know you're doing it. You can just take, you know, just take a couple deep breaths while you're doing it. And, you know, even that you could, there might even be a conversation going on that you just zone out from and just introduce yourself to the land. I mean, it's the same. It's like the idea that you don't speak the language, you're not from there. Like so many people have invited me into their homes and served me a meal. And it wouldn't occur to me not to say, wow, thank you. So generous of you to cook me your local food and try to communicate me and like with me and like the- Yeah, like- no, I, I'm, I get that. But but like, I'm only using that as an analogy to be the closest- No, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas there's a hell of a lot more of a, a, a gulf between me and a plant than there is in, in that case. And, 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 and I feel like, what I feel like is that there's some other kind of- There's, there's a form of communication that is trying to happen. Yes. And, and I think I would be crowding up the space if, if, if I just did that. You know, I, I, I kind of feel like, yeah, I don't know what else to say, really. Um, and, and the other thing is, like, when you think about the reason why plants are so different from us is, is that they're in different, I mean, as far as trees are concerned, you know, you'd almost have to say, uh, and, and your hello would take 50 years, you know, because <laughs> you know, in a way, like there's, there's all kinds of reasons why they're not in the same space or zone that, that we are. Uh, and and yet I kind of feel that there is there is a, a kind of an indigeneity that 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 that's possible, you know. Yes. That, that we almost are in a position as people without um immediate ancestors, you know, that there is actually a benefit to this, like that we absolutely start from scratch and 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 figure out how to be people of land. That's right. Without these and, and that's not to say that I, you know, I would like to have a lot more contact with 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 people who have those actual indigenous roots than I do. And you know, but you you have actual indigenous roots. You guys are very British. No, no, no. What I mean is, I mean the unbroken stuff. Yeah. So like, there's, there's a chap I've done several podcasts with, who's uh, who's um, he's from two different 
tribal ancestry roots in in uh, Arizona. But you know, when I talk to him, he he is talking about what his grandfather taught him, which right. comes right down unbroken. And it took me a while to figure out the quality of this interaction. You know, right. that, that, that I'm not talking about someone that's that's trying to get to where you know. And we've had very interesting conversations. The most interesting thing about them is the fact that he can't relate at all to being a person with no roots. That's very funny. You know, the reflection on that conversation, which which I had with another, you know, post-Empire British person trying to figure it all out. We were both really struck by how he could. He said, no, you're British, you're fine, you've got this. And no, 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 no. We, we, we have no roots at all. And, you know, anyway... Yeah, I understand like that 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 we are all because of our DNA, because of our biology, we are all people of land and so on. But yeah, the difference between having to start from where we are and starting from where someone else um, who's who's got to some extent an unbroken lineage is what I mean. Yeah. This is a great opening for me to talk about my research, actually. Cool. Um, what I and my personal experience. So like a lot of my master's research came out of being involved over a 12 year period with a group of women who were recreating rites of passage for, for women. Yeah. Um, and a back in 2009, this woman Rachel Ruach like woke up in the night and had like just got downloaded an entire um, like process and system for, for women's rites of passage in our culture, which is um, nowadays I, it's called Jewish, but I would say it's like Semitic actually. Um, because I, I as, a, as a person of Jewish descent, I, I don't really um, align with Jewish, Jewish religion at all, but I do feel ethnically very much like that I'm descended from pastoralists in, in the Middle East. You know, I feel very, yeah. very, very, very deeply connected to that that ethnic identity, but in terms of organized religion and prayers and, you know, a punishing, angry God of the, of the Bible, all that stuff just really, but anyway, so we, what Rahel was receiving was this like pre-Jewish Semitic um, kind of women's rite of passage process that um, is now in its 12th year of running and is a program for young women, but it was also a way into cr creating ceremony um, for the, for the first time for me. And, and over the years, that ceremony has actually gotten more and more elaborate as part of the rites of passage work. But for me, in my own work, I've stripped it down further and further to the most elemental pieces, like the four directions, like setting a sacred, sacred circle, like having a central fire. Um, and, and really what it means to, take a ritual or a ceremonial container and bring it, strip it down so that it doesn't belong to anybody. Like no culture on the earth can say, you've appropriated the four directions from us because almost every single culture on the earth has the four directions. We're humans, right? Like we live with the solstices and the equinoxes and the cardinal directions. Like there's no way you can say that was appropriated. And, you know, setting a protective circle with the grain of the culture. Like when I was setting a protective circle in England, I used oats because that's what you guys eat. You know, here I use corn because that's ubiquitous in the United States. But um, the, and like in, you know, in other cultures, they might use sorghum or other, other staple grains. Um, 
but the idea is that how, um, uh, for me, that's what's intellectually and spiritually exciting is how do you, how do you strip a ceremonial container down to its core elements that are pan cultural? And then every culture can re, re, like if it was a bowl, put back in the bowl, whatever elements they know of their own culture, right? So um, this is to me what I've, I'm, I'm writing a book on it and we'll see if it's ever written or ever, ever read by anyone. But the idea is, is like, what are the core elements of a ceremonial container that in which we can um, be in deep prayer and honor the earth and give back to the land and feed the spirits of the land in a way that doesn't steal from any indigenous culture. Um, you know, here in California, there's, you know, thousands of people who just say, aho, aho, you know, after every spiritual thing, which is just a ter ter terrible stealing from the Lakota culture, you know, and the number of times I was in England at some sort of ecstatic dance and someone put on some Native American chant that had been turned into a techno beat, like the, the degree of horrific appropriation that's incredibly thoughtless and is incredibly hurtful, especially when it's done by the descendants of the colonizers who destroyed the culture is, is really upsetting. But I think that we as, uh, we as humans can look beyond the cultural appropriation to find ways that are pan-human and say, okay, within this, like, okay, let's say we're gonna make a fire, set a sacred circle with oats, call in the four directions, like Stonehenge is all about the four directions. You guys have the four directions, you know, like crazy in England. And then what are the elements of British culture that we know about indigenous British culture we can bring in here, right? Like we know there was a profound connection with the stars and the star, the, the galaxies and the, the planets. Like we can bring a little bit of that in because we know there was a bit of that with Stonehenge. Like we know there was, you know, a relationship to the, to the hawthorn and to the oak and to the beach and to all these different local trees, et cetera. We can bring that in. And so for me, what's exciting is this idea of co-creating new ways of honoring the earth and relating to the more than human world that doesn't steal from anyone and actually pulls from our own, from yeah. our own indigenous whisper. And, um, and I'll just say one last thing, which is that in my research, um, what it took was community members getting together week after week, month after month, and co-visioning and co-remembering. So for example, in certain communities in East Africa, in Uganda and, and, uh, and Kenya, for example, they would, they would meet as groups of elders for, for weeks and months. And someone would come and say, I remember this, this song my grandmother ta taught me. And someone would say, I had a dream where an ancestor showed up and showed me this. And it's the collective unconscious of a community that actually can bring back like draw forward um, ancestral ways that have been lost because they're never really lost. Like they're still encoded in our DNA and ancestors yeah. still communicate through dreams. And, you know, you might find an heirloom seed variety and someone might say, you know, my grandmother used to grow that. Um, and those things are all available to British people. Even if your ancestors were, they had their indigeneity destroyed 200 years ago or 700 years ago. There's still like um, memories. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's worse than that. Though. Um, like 
so as I said, the, the, the most recent thing is the enclosures and there was, there was relation to land and so on at that point. But um, I'm pretty clear that, that the Neolithic is, yeah. is where things go wrong. And for us, yeah. that started 4,000 years ago here. <laughs> but, so, you know, we, we haven't had, and, and, and I have slight issues with, you know, Stonehenge is actually a Neolithic site. So it would have been, you know, a hierarchical, yes. uh, you know, in, in many ways, nothing like what we're trying to allude to in right. terms of existing indigenous cultures. However, uh, you, you know, reading your blog the other day did, did get me thinking about this, and, and somebody just sent me a, a master's thesis to read, actually about, um, let me just check what the place is called. Uh, yeah, Blick Mead. So this is a place right near Stonehenge. I mean, his, his thesis is whether there was a settled a, a long-term settled Mesolithic community there. He's looking at he's looking at um, what would have been a full-blown hunter-gatherer culture there in in, in Salisbury at the site of, site of Stonehenge. Um, but that's yeah, I mean that in itself is is eight thousand years ago. Um, and and generally speaking, I think that the population was fairly small but it's just that like i think it, in terms of because we've had so many ice ages and so on we haven't had a lot of you know the kind of culture that you've got um in in the places that tend to get discussed you know like australia africa north and south america you know that, that, that have these indigenous cultures which which have thousands and thousands and thousands of years of standing so you see a culture develop um on that basis and I'm afraid that where, where we are, we, yeah, I haven't actually done the maths here, but I, th I think we're, we're only talking a few thousand years at the most and quite a small population. So, you know, our ancestors a bit thin on the ground is kind of what I'm trying to say. Um, but, I, but, but I think my point is, is that they're not thin within you. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And, oh. and, um, yeah, I'm not sure it matters too much, but I'm just saying, like, it is a slightly different context. Yeah. And, and I think as Westerners who have an extreme proclivity to exotify Indigenous peoples, I'm not saying you are, I'm just saying Indigenous people are still people, you know, and their yeah. culture has changed dramatically over thousands of years too, right? I think what's yeah. important, especially in the avoidance of appropriation, and um, an exotification is to is to really boil down what we admire and want to emulate of indigenous peoples yeah. and to divorce that from their particular cultures right so like one of the things people love about indigenous people is their connection to 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 the more than human realm right to the that they gather and they forage and they have they they have a mystical relationship with the forest they live in and they they honor the local deities and they have sacred sites like those are things that we can recreate that are that, without stealing from them right like that's that's what i'm trying to point at is we can sit down and make these stripped down ceremonies that have yeah. elements of modern british culture even like and you know, maybe we're pouring beer on the ground in, in offering and and just just to say like look here's something I value here's some tobacco that I value yeah. and I'm gonna give to you even though there was never tobacco on these lands you know um, that's that's a new world thing but 
I, this is important and valuable to me. It costs like 20 pounds for a pack of tobacco. Let me, if I give half of it to the fire and offering, that's like a serious offering for me, right? Um, and like, what does it mean to know all the plant species and know how to gather them and how to cook with them? And what does it mean to make little offerings and to just to walk around the land and, and, and try to make relations? Like, these are the ways that we can re-indigify ourselves without having to steal or steal from or exotify Native Americans or people of the rainforest. Or, you know, it's really easy to be like, those people are better than us, that we, we wanna be like them. So we're gonna start, you know, talking like them or learning how to chant like them. I think that's hugely problematic for me. So yeah. at the same time, we're humans. And why would, why would we, if, if, if our deepest heart's longing is to, is to be more, engage with the more than human realm we can do that without having to appropriate and that's where i think it gets really exciting and and really creative right it's like how do we start building the, we can start foraging and when we when before we forest we can forage we can just ask permission and listen because what i we haven't talked about it is like when i ask permission of the land or when i ask for things like can i gather this can i go here a lot of times i get a no or i get a only if you do this or ask better you know, like usually I find that the land, if I'm listening properly, has very strong opinions about what I should or shouldn't do. And it's taken me years to really stretch that muscle. And also to, to think like, am I crazy? Am I becoming psychotic? I'm hearing these messages from a tree or, a, you know, the earth that, that are clearly not coming from my own head. Am I making it up? Is it my imagination? And to really like learn to distill out like, no, that's actually this tree telling me, go away. Like, I don't want you to pee at the base of me, actually. Like, go pee over there. <laughs> you know, like there's like little ways where you can just sort of check in and be like, hey, is it okay if I chop off some of your branches? No, I need those branches. Go chop off the other guy's branches. You know, like they're, they're communicating with us. But it's a question of being willing to go into the imaginal realm or the... Um, the non-rational realm and, and take those, those little things you hear seriously. And, and yeah, I, I just, I don't think that we, if, if we keep saying indigenous people are different than us because, you know, I'm descended from refugees or colonizers or imperialists, we really deprive ourselves of something important. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely don't think it's, um, it's a question of anybody being fundamentally different. It's just, you know, if, if you live in a certain way, in a certain context, there's an outcome for how you are. And you yeah. know, we have our outcome right here. Um, but, you know, the, the, the basic character of, of, of a human, you know, I, I just think that if you, if you look at indigenous cultures on the whole that have not been disrupted and, and are carrying on as, as, as they have done, they're behaving like a proper species. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the way I look at it. And, and yeah. I want to behave like a proper species too, but I'm that's aware beautiful. that I'm aware that I can't do that in isolation because that just makes right. me a weird modern English person, you know. <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah, I mean, I joke with people that come on my walks and say, look, um, I just want you to know today that 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 what we're doing is not extraordinary or eccentric it's normal and you know this stuff you do the rest of your life is really weird so yep. basically 
this is a training course today and how to be more normal. And, um, you know, and we, if you plants and I say, is anyone feeling normal yet? You know, and, and, and things like that. So, um, but I guess, yeah, I, I'm hearing everything you're saying about having these conversations. I'm just not sure that I'm going to go out tomorrow and start having them um, because um, I don't know. I just feel like I'm having a different kind of conversation and it's not, you know, like I say, I may be right where you are in five years time, but um, for now, I just feel like it's a different paced conversation with a kind of different long-term objective. And I don't know. I just feel like something other than don't use my branch. I need it for this. It kind of needs all my attention to, to try and get what's being said, you know, because I think something is being said that, that is really important. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, one thing you could do when you have these groups is say, you know, if anyone's interested in exploring this more deeply, I'm going to run a monthly group where we get together and talk about these things. Yeah. You know, what, what I found in my research is that you need a collective of people to commit yeah. to just coming together and remembering and discussing and, yeah. and doing it. It's very hard to do it as a, as a person alone. Yeah. It's just, I guess, okay. So here's the thing, like, uh, I think it's where we're coming at it from. So for me, and it's, it's not to say like one is anything, you know, like better or different or, you know, it's just, it's just that for me, the, um, the conversation that I'm wanting to get started is, is a practical one. You know, it's like, let's get people's actual life that they live practically day to day, month to month, year to year, and hopefully generation to generation to start being in step with what the, what the land is doing. So we are practically taking time to do this instead of doing that. And then we're eating this instead of eating that. And we're putting our physical energy into something that entwines us with the life cycles of other plants. And then our culture and our memory and, and how we feel as a, as a group of people together, our identity starts being framed around that. And for, you know, to me, that's the basis for ceremony. Now, it's entirely valid that, that where you're coming from is to, to, is to try and get to this, let's dig into the ancestors, let's get into this, you know. But, like, where I'm really agitated, really agitated, is this has got to happen, that there's got to be a group of people in my little village, Charlton, that, that respond to the Hawthorne harvest every year and actually just do it, you know. Yeah. And to be honest, if I'm going for people that want to be able to practice the kind of thing that you're talking about, I'm only going to get the hippies in the village. Whereas if, if, if I'm going to start with, with, with the kids that are hanging around on the street and the people from the council house, you know, I'm just going to talk about Hawthorne jam, you know, and, and, and. But, but I think, I think you're missing an important piece, which is that the practical largely stems from an, un, an unconscious longing for more yeah. connection. No, absolutely. Like, no, it's, I, like no one's going to go gather Hawthorne when they can just as easily go to the supermarket and buy whatever product that would, you know, like there has, there, there is a psychological, emotional piece that comes from longing. And like, yeah. just even in British culture, like yeah. the amount of people who like, you know, read their horoscope or whatever, there's the, the extreme pragmatism and uh, what's the word when you, um, and like, uh, 
agnosticism or atheism in British culture, it's, it's, um, it leaves people longing. It really leaves people longing. I think it's why people drink. There's like, there's a real longing for magic. And I think if you can intertwine the practical Hawthorne harvest with just a little sprinkling of that magic, it goes in deeper. No, I totally agree. But as 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 I kind of briefly typed in to the, the email I sent in, in before before this chat, I kind of see because I I do that right. There's all kinds of you know pseudo mysticism really in 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 what I do when I teach because I'm talking about you know even down to the the, the thing you said about these molecules that you've just eaten. Yeah, this plant are going to be part of you tomorrow. So, hey, you're actually going to be part of this bit of land you're standing on. You know, even something like that, that is deeply spiritual. Like when people it's consider that kind of thing, you know, um, but it's it's like it's like a party that everybody can come to right now, not in 10 years time when they're more indigenized. But right now I can say things about participation in ecosystems and and you just joined the food chain in your locality and 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 hey look you've got nettles growing outside your door and this is like a very kind person knocking on your door going can I help and you rip them up and throw them away and look how kind they are because they come back again knock on your door again and say hello I'm nettles can I help and, and you know <laughs> this is how it works so I say these kinds of things which which but they're but they're in a kind of foolish enough way for the most like non you know not going there kind of agnostic atheist whatever you want to say person shut down completely but like they can see my point of course i'm not saying i mean you have to meet people where they are right like i I still think you're making a limited argument which is for those people that's what you do and for other people you bring them further and for yourself you go even further right like that's that's the thing it's like you have to meet people with where they're at and if they're just psyched to like learn about how to gather some local foods and make some basic things they can keep in their pantry like great but then maybe there's like a kids group and kids love that maybe you go with the, you make a kids group and you bring more magic in to what you teach to the children or maybe you find like three or four hippies and you guys get together and you talk about these things more deeply and you have some ceremony yeah. like it doesn't have to be one size fits no, 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 no. all but the point but the point i'm making is that 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 this way we can do the ceremony with 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 everybody and it does go deeper and this intangible thing of 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 being related it it's it it is profound but we haven't had to we haven't had to invoke anything that that is beyond the material actually because because what because what we're saying is like you know like the communion thing so we're going to drink this birch sap you are communing with life rising from the soil you are communing with the awakening of this landscape, you know? Beautiful. There's nothing about that, that anybody who absolutely refuses to accept any notion of, of whatever else beyond, you know, but they're communing with this beyond anyway, quite happily, because I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm I completely it. agree with you. It's I'm doing it with metaphors and with, with, with science, you know, like the, what science has told us about what's going on inside a birch tree when you, when you can't see it. Um, and so you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to set this up as antithetical at all to what you're saying. It's <laughs> not at all, you know. It, it's just, it's, it just seems to be the the method that I'm working with. And and, and I think it's wonderful. I mean, that's the thing. Your work is fantastic. I, I, I completely am not disagreeing with you at all. 
I just, I just think that there's a longing that doesn't get, yeah. it's the human Which, longing yeah, that's absolutely. not being talked about. Absolutely. I, you know, I think that, that is, that is at the heart of it. And if, if you saw my kind of writing and journaling over the last couple of years, you know, it all basically centers around that, that this is, yeah. this is like star-crossed lovers, you know, like we, 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 fallen out you know and and yet we're being called back and yet there's something in us which is saying i gotta get back and that's right we don't know how so 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 this is this is like saying hey come like and 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 saying you know here's here's the hawthorn tree so oh my god i'm feeling really emotional that idea of star-crossed lovers but but they're right there right we're like oh we're star-crossed lovers but but the lover's just right there saying i'm right here and we, it's like it's like it's like we. Uh, I'm really feeling quite emotional. What a beautiful metaphor. And and when you introduce someone, like it might just be Hawthorne jam. I don't know why I said that. I hate jam. I don't make jam, but, but, <laughs> but it's just a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people's point of contact with wild foods is jam. You know, so fair enough. You introduce them to Hawthorne and and they make jam, but but it's this intangible thing. It's it's almost like it's the fact that it's intangible. This person has just created or had facilitated if i'm the one that's said hey here's the hawthorne you know an actual relation to this to this tree you know this particular tree but hawthorne in general um and it's almost like i want to just shut up and back off you know i've done my matchmaking bit i want to leave you two alone to have a little chat and see how you get on you know see what comes of this you know it's it's you know, like especially for people in this space that we're talking about, that that they're not hippies. They're not. They haven't got any kind of background to any. You know. So, but but it's like that thing that happens there. That, that intangible thing is still. It's every bit as deep, mystical, spiritual. It, it is. You know, these people now they've kind of got a real bit of a thing about Hawthorne now. It just changes everything, you know, like for me, learning about wild garlic and Hawthorne, like we don't have those plants where I am. And it was a way into the British landscape that that made it seem like I was in a forest full of friends, you know. Yeah. And and, and that's you're you're completely right. It's like just teaching a few basic plant species, you know, you saying that about a forest full of friends. I I did this uh, podcast with a really lovely friend of mine called Monica Wild, um, who, who, who's done some work with, with young people. And, and these are kids, inner city kids, really edgy, you know, she takes them out, does a bit of foraging, they meet nettles, a few other plants, yeah? But the whole time they're edgy. Like, they don't feel safe. This is strange, you know. Okay, so next week, they get in the minibus or whatever again, and they go a different place. They get out of the van, and it's like, oh, it's nettles. And it is, the way she described it, is it's just like, oh, there's old Brian. You're like Brian, you know? Yeah, exactly. They saw this point, this Look, thing. Look, there's sweet. Look, I can stick that in my water bottle and make my water taste delicious. You know, like little things. As if they're seeing a familiar friend, right? Yes, exactly. This made them feel safe. This made them feel familiar. It made them go, oh, phew. And yet again, it's inner city kids, which if you, if you, if you, yeah. So they're, they're getting this intangible thing yes. without, 
without the need to hang any of this language on it for them, which they would just go, you what? But, but actually, a bit further down the road, they'd, they'd understand that language, but yeah. Well, but that's my point. You don't start with this language, right? Like it took me years to become comfortable with like asking permission and waiting to hear and trusting that what I heard wasn't my imagination, yeah. right? It took me years to get comfortable with lighting a sacred fire and learning how to pray and learning how to make offerings to the earth, right? And learning how to be in relation. But just as you said, like starting off, like, hey, that's nettle, that's meadowsweet, that's hawthorn, that's whatever, you know, that's, these are the plants that that are in my forest or in my local park at the edge of the grass. Like that's the beginning. Yeah. But, but what my, my deeper point is, is that human beings are not atheistic, by nature we and we are not pragmatic rational scientific by nature we are our nature is to seek out the magical and the mystical and to imbue that as we can into our lives that's why superheroes are such a big deal that's why everyone loves frozen you know it's like there's this there's this deep unconscious piece in us that wants that magic and yeah. and from childhood and even into adulthood that's why people read their horoscopes, et cetera. And to just a, approach this stuff pragmatically is a great first step. But if you really want to get to a deeper level, there is that longing for the magic, you know, that, 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 is, that is our heart's, our heart's deepest desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you know, I would, I definitely feel I'm connecting to, to magic, but it, it's just less in the sense of um, feeling that a particular plant is talking to me or whatever. But I guess it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just haven't really given it my attention in that sense, you know. But 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 I definitely feel that um, there's an unfolding of stuff which is very intuitive and it's 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 beyond you know, what do you call it, the collective unconscious or God or the land or, you know, something. But, but you know, the, so the magic's definitely there for me. It's just maybe um, not in this very personalised way for individual plants. But, yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. I, unfortunately, I have to go. Um... Yeah, that's cool. We're supposed to keep these things a bit shorter anyway. Not that this is that short, but, yeah, we have been known <laughs> to go two and a half hours into these chats. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll be in touch thank you so much well yeah and have a wonderful birth and the first few days of this wonderful time <laughs> thank you all right take care all right rachel bye-bye bye-bye